Amen. Well, if you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and turn over to Isaiah chapter 62, or uh, 61 actually. We're going to be at the very end of chapter 61 and then mostly in chapter 62 this morning. Uh, Still in this section of our series through Isaiah, where what we're trying to figure out is how are we supposed to respond to all of Isaiah's messages about what God has done to save us from our sin. We've been spending months together unpacking Isaiah's insights into human sin and to God's response to it, and now we want to know what our response is supposed to be. Because the kind of things that we've seen in Isaiah are what what you might call self-involving claims, or rather to believe what Isaiah has told us would be to take on a self-involving belief. And what that means is, there's some beliefs, obviously, that you can hear and just sort of move on with. There are other beliefs that, if you really own them, change everything. They change the way you interact with the world. They change the way you respond to the claim that you've heard. So, for example, um, if you hear on the evening news that someone's house burned down, that's a certain kind of belief that you take on, right? Um, It doesn't involve you, probably, unless you know the person. But if you drive up to your own house and you see the smoke billowing, you know, as you drive up, before you can see it, you pull up and there's fire trucks pulled all in front of your yard and their house is engulfed in flames. Well, it's the same basic belief, isn't it? A house burned down. But this one's self-involving. It changes your world on the spot. You don't just hear about it, turn off the TV and go back to sleep. And the kind of claims that Isaiah has made about who we are, how desperate our need is, and how great God's solution to our problems has been are self-involving beliefs if we own them. If we truly believe them, they change us. And what we've been trying to do is, in the last couple of weeks is is look at what Isaiah, how Isaiah describes the changes in us that will occur if we really believe the things that he's told us. We've talked about how it all stems from trust. That really, if you believe God is as big as, the, as Isaiah claims that God is, and if you believe that you are as sinful and as weak as Isaiah claims that you are, and if you really believe that God's solution to our problems is so big and so gracious and so free that it's available to you and it's all you really need, well, then that, that means what it looks like for you to respond to that is to trust in him, to trust in the way that a child trusts its parent for everything that it needs to survive, in the way that you would, you would you know, the way that I'm trusting this stage right now to hold me up as I stand on it. Like if it isn't going to hold me, I fall. It's, trust is a sort of throwing yourself on the truth of these promises, that you're going to go down with the ship if the promises aren't true. You're staking everything to them. We also looked at how if these claims about, about us, about what God has done to save us are true, then it changes how we interact with each other. And ultimately, if, if we bring nothing to, to the table but sin and God gives us everything that we need, that changes the way you relate to other people and their sin and their brokenness. And it changes the way you, you, you uh, think about what's wrong with them and, and, and how, what they need and how you're going uh, to respond to what they need. It means that you don't oppress people, for one, but it also means you don't just watch while other people get oppressed. You, you see their problems as your problems in the way that God has taken our problems onto himself. It means that you don't relate to anyone in the same way ever, uh, if you really believe it. And today we get to another step, another layer of what trust looks like. If you really believe that the promises of Isaiah are true, then what it looks like for you to respond to those promises shapes it it's, it's dramatically shapes the way you wait on those promises to come to fulfillment. 
So it's been often said that, that, that the characteristic posture for Christians in this age is one of waiting. Because the promises that have been made to us are a lot bigger than anything we actually see. They are dwarfed. The, the world that we live in now is dwarfed by the world that's described to us, even in the pages of Isaiah. And so we're waiting on Jesus to deliver and what he's promised to deliver. And we need to know what it looks like to wait in faith and hope. And, the path, and Israel found themselves in the same spot, even more so than us, because they were still waiting on their Messiah. And this passage that we're going to look at today is meant to describe what it looks like to wait in faith. The actions that we'll take, that will sort of consume our lives as a, just a natural response to the promises that have been made to us as we wait for those promises to come around. That's what we're going to look at this morning. If you found Isaiah 61, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word? I'm going to read um, verse, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 61, and then I'm going to read all the way through um, chapter 62, verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness, just like a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to begin with what we're waiting for. Um, and, and this is a little bit risky. Uh, th- th- this choice of a passage for, for teasing out the response of waiting was dangerous because the passage, if you want to take it as a whole unit, includes, includes a whole bunch of verses that are about the promises of God and only a couple of verses that are about how we respond to them. So the risk, which is a live one, is that I'm going to end up talking for 30 minutes about the promises of God that take up most of this passage and then I'm going to be rushing through in two or three minutes to... The, the, the promise, or the way we're supposed to respond to those promises. I'm going to try not to do that, uh, but that, this is my caveat to let you guys know to expect a really, really high-level flyover of the beautiful language we just read from verses 10 all the way down to verse 5. It's just kind of the nature of the beast. I do want to start there, though, 
Because these verses capture and summarize a lot of what we've already said about what we're waiting for. What Israel was waiting for then and what we're waiting for now. And I want to make sure that's clear. Because the, the nature of what we're waiting for determines the nature of our response to that message as we wait. So, what are we waiting for? boils down to two things in this passage. We're waiting for the anointed one, and we're waiting for his kingdom. Now, as we'll say in a minute, we're not waiting for him in the same way Israel was. We've seen him. He's come. But he's going to come again, and so we are somewhat like Israel in waiting for him to come and bring in these promises. I want to walk through the details of this passage really quickly to show you that it's the Messiah, the anointed one they were waiting for, that this was the guy who's going to bring in all the promises. And then I want to point to a couple of images in verses 4 and 5 that are a beautiful way of capturing all we've said about the kingdom that this Messiah is going to bring and what, what it will look like for us and for our environment. So quickly, pointing to the Messiah, just sort of trying to show you that's who's talked about here and then what that Messiah will bring before we look at, at what to do while we wait on him. So verse 10 starts the song. We've seen some songs before in Isaiah. This one's a song sung by a person identified in the first verse as the one the Lord has anointed. Now, anointed one, or the the word for anointed here is our translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. Normally, that's a more familiar word to us. It's this figure that the Old Testament sort of builds to as the one through whom God's promises are going to come about. Isaiah has been talking about this figure. He hasn't used anointed one yet, but he talks about him really early on as this king who's going to come on David's line and reign over God's people with peace and, and happiness and security. And then we've talked about him as the servant who is going to come and take on the sins of God's people to make them holy. He would suffer for them so they could, be, they could have a new identity with him taking care of that old one. And now we get this new image. I think it's the same person. Now he's speaking to us or singing for us as the one that is going to bring in all the things God has promised. He starts out here in verse 10 with joy. He's worshiping because God is, is, is going to use him for this purpose. He says that he's exulting because God has clothed him with the garments of salvation and the robe of righteousness. I think when I've read those, that verse before, I think I, there's even a song with these lyrics in it. I've thought about it or sung it as about me, right, being clothed in Christ's righteousness, because that's a biblical idea. That's, that's in the Bible. But here, it's talking about the Messiah. He's saying, I'm, I'm the one who's wrapped myself in these garments. And here they speak not so much of, of, of a cloak that we would put on to identify ourselves, but of him as the instrument of salvation and righteousness, as the guy who's going to accomplish salvation for us, and it's going to present us as righteous to God. They're like armor that he wears. One of the reasons we know that's the case is that it's basically a quote from a couple chapters earlier, a passage we won't look at this morning, but in chapter 59, God talks about himself putting on the garments of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. In that passage, it pictures God searching throughout all of the earth, looking for someone who can intervene on behalf of his people. He looks at his people and he sees how broken they are and how sinful. And he knows there's nobody in his people who can deliver them. And so he looks for, it says he looks for one who can intercede and he finds no one. And so he determines that his own arm will accomplish the salvation of his people. And so he puts on himself the garments of salvation and the garments of righteousness. And now, in this song, we see him handing these things to this servant. He's the guy who's going to get it done. He is God, broken into our history to bring us salvation and righteousness. That's the importance of verse 10. 
And he's worshiping because of it. He celebrates that he gets to do this. It's coming, and he's going to bring it in. And chapter 62 starts with him again, saying he's not going to keep silent. He will not be quiet until it's done. This is not just about words. This is about activity. I will not rest. I will not be quiet until, until the righteousness of my people of Zion or Jerusalem, until their righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch, until the nations see it, until they, until they see your glory, until you have received the new name that the Lord gives you, I'm not going to rest. This is the Messiah through whom all God's promises are yes, the one who will bring them to be. I love verse 3. As a way of summarizing it. I'm not going to rest, in other words, until you are a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. What's that mean? A crown is, a crown is the sign, the symbol of the king's authority and his reign, of his greatness. The crown doesn't make him king. The crown testifies that he is king. And so by saying that his people were now going to become his crown, What he's saying is that God is going to show the world that he's king through the the way that he acts on behalf of his people. And if he can save this kind of people, and if he can make them glorious, then it proves once and for all that he and he alone rules over all that is. His people will be the proof of it. And that's the promise that the Messiah is is going to bring. Now, Now, what I want to do quickly before we move on to what to do while we wait on these promises, on this Messiah, is point you to the images in verses 4 and 5 for what this Messiah will do. So far, all this imagery is about him doing it. He's going to bring salvation and righteousness. He's the one through whom God's promises come to pass, and he's not going to stop until they're done. But verses 4 and 5 have this amazing, beautiful imagery for what it is that he's going to do, what the final product will be. When this, when this Messiah has done his work. Verse 2 hints at it. You will be called by a new name. Names equivalent to identity back then. A name is what you're known for, who you are. I'm going to change who you are and how you're known. And then verses 4 and 5 tell us about the name change. No more forsaken, no more desolate. You will be called, my delight is in her. You will be called Mary. Now, to unpack this, what I want to point out at the top is that there's two things that are getting a name change here. And there are the two things that help us understand the whole sweep of the Old Testament's promises. There's the promise that you, as a people, are going to have your name changed. And then there's the promise that your land is going to change. Did you see that? You and your land. You and your land. It's stated over and over. Think about the promises made so far about personal identity and about new heavens and new earth, a place to live and to dwell secure. Because God's promises through the Old Testament always hinge not just on you as an individual, but on your environment, on a place where you can live and where God can prove to you through the way that he cares for you that he is God, that he alone is sufficient. Land from the promised land and the promises to Abraham all the way through the new heavens and the new earth always represents a place where you can live without fear or without sorrow or without envy, without any of the things that are stirred up in us by our own insecurity. And, and that's what's promised here. He's promised to change you and your environment. I want to unpack each of them really quickly before we move on. 
The promise to Israel, to the people, to Israel and to us and to all others who would trust in God's promises is that you'll no longer be called forsaken. Israel had been forsaken. Their sins had led them to judgment. They had seen them banished from the land that was their whole identity. But no more. God's love is too strong to leave them there. Far from forsaken, through the work of the Messiah, now they're going to be called, my delight is in you. Not just, you're okay. I rejoice over you. Now, I want to make sure this is clear for you. And one of the things we've talked about, about the promises of God through the servant, is that the servant takes away the sin of his people in a kind of legal transaction. It's a theological word for it. No, the word is justification, to be declared right to be approved, to be right in the sight of the, of the one who stands over you in, as judge. Now, that's a crucial biblical category that, that spans the whole Bible. We've got to understand it and, and, and get a taste for why it's beautiful, but, but sometimes it's hard to taste the beauty of it because it seems a bit sterile, just sort of like a legal transaction, not a personal, it doesn't, it doesn't immediately seem very personal, this idea of justification that because Jesus has paid our penalty now, we're... We don't owe it anymore. I think this verse and this image of being changed from forsaken to my delight is in her is talking about the same thing, but in an Im- with an image, with language that can help us taste why it's personally beautiful. Because justification is not just about God saying, you're no longer guilty. It's also him saying, you're approved. You are right. You are who you should be. You are pleasing to me. It's not just a negative thing that takes away something bad. It's a positive thing that replaces it with something new, a new status. And that's what's promised here. This desire to please, to be approved, is in every single one of us. And it shows up differently in different people in different levels of intensity and in different ways. But it's in everybody. It's in all children who want to please their parents. And few things can cause as much trauma to that relationship as feeling like you haven't and never able to please your parents. It's among spouses. There's usually no one that you'd rather please or whose approval of you means more than your spouse's approval of you. It's, It's at work. You want to please those who sort of hold you in their power, right? Your boss, your superior. You want them to like your work. Certainly, it's true in, in, um, in the academic world. As, you know, your professors, you want their stamp of approval on your work or, um, or, or you know, your life sort of depends on it in some ways, when, when you're, especially when you're a professional student or a graduate student. You want it from your professional community, wherever you work. You want to be known for being good at what you do. It's in everybody. It may not show up in the same place in everybody. Some, some may even pride themselves on not really caring what other people think, but it's in you somewhere. It's the fuel that drives Instagram, right? Facebook, Twitter, all of them have this like feature. That's what that's about. You want to be pleasing to those who see you. Now, it can be a debilitating problem. I and mean, the clini- I guess the best clinical term used now is codependency, right? When you, you can't know who you are unless other people like you. And one of the common clinical solutions is you just got to like yourself. You need better self-esteem. You need, to, you need to liberate yourself from this tyranny of what other people think about you. And there's some truth in that. 
but it also can be a dead end for you. I don't want you going down that road only to find that you can never please yourself either, that you're always letting yourself down, or that you're just setting an arbitrary standard for what makes for a good life, that you've set the bar so low that you can meet it. That's not going to satisfy you either. It's a dead end. This desire to please can be debilitating, but it's also deeply natural. And and from the Bible's perspective, it's deeply right. The problem is that we have misidentified who it is we're supposed to please. And we identify all sorts of objects that don't matter and ultimately end up letting us down. But the Bible's message is never that it doesn't matter whether you, who you are, whether you please anyone. The Bible's message is that your whole life is designed for and hinges upon you pleasing the God who made you. Think about the story of creation. When God creates everything in this world, but especially humankind, he, he declares that they are very good. That's the point of it. It's the culmination of the whole story, that they are good. I approve of them. I am pleased by them. And, and we're told in other places in the scripture that every, all things are for God's glory. They're for his pleasure. That's who you are. That's what you're made for. But we seek approval in all the wrong places. We care a lot more about the approval of other people than we do about the God who made us. But here, here is a promised solution to that fundamental problem. The fundamental problem for all human experience is that we seek the approval we were made to want in all the wrong places. It looks like rebellion and idolatry, and it leaves us broken and fragmented and insecure. Here's God's solution to our problem. His solution through the servant who won't rest till it's done is to declare a new name over us, to declare that we are not just not guilty, but my delight is in her. That is your name. That's who you are. That defines you. The Lord rejoices over you. That's the promise here because you are now seen not for your own goodness, but through the goodness of the servant, which is perfect and complete and unlosable when you trust in him. My delight is in her. That's your name. That's the individual side of this promise. There's also lots of language here about the land, about the place where God provides for his people, where he, where he gives them an environment in which they don't have to be afraid. They don't have to sorrow. There's no death here. Think about the promises of chapter 25. I think this, in other words, I think this verse here is, is one poetic way of capturing a lot of what we've already seen together. Think of chapter 25 in Isaiah, the promise that God is going to swallow up death on his holy mountain. That thing that hangs over all of us and terrifies us and holds us in its grip, he's going to swallow it up. It's not going to have any place in his world. Think about the, the promise of chapter 65 that in the new heavens and the new earth, God is going to make it so that your work is fruitful. You will no longer have someone else come in and take what you have, what you have produced. He will make it so that you no longer have to worry. There's no distress in his world. And God himself, again back to chapter 25, will wipe away every tear with his own hand. This is, the, this is the land that is married and no longer desolate. To be desolate is to be fruitless, to be exposed, to be vulnerable, to be worthless. And that was Israel, right? But the promise is that God is going to marry us, marry the land even, so that he pledges his covenant commitment, a marriage-like commitment to stake himself and his reputation on his ability to protect what's his. 
to provide an environment when there is no place for any fear. That's the promise. Marriage to the ruler of the universe who has staked himself to your protection. Now, these promises, beautiful as they are, sweeping and large as they are, are are not here yet, not fully. We find ourselves in a different place than Israel did because we have living on this side of Jesus, right? Jesus comes and at the beginning of his ministry, he reads this passage and says, I'm here. I'm the one. And Jesus' death and resurrection promise us that the new world has already broken into ours. Jesus' resurrection is the swallowing up of death. We're just waiting to see it become reality in our experience. But we're not in the same place Israel was. We have even more reason to believe that God can make good on this. And we have the promise because the servant has already died for us that this new identity of, of being a delight to God instead of, instead of being a displeasure to him is possible for you now. You can own it now if you trust in him and turn from whatever else you're trying to please and just, and just give yourself over to Jesus. That's available to you now, this instant, if you will trust in him. But there's so much more. We still do live with guilt. And sin is still a reality in our experience, right? Where it won't be when this promise is fully realized. Death is still here. Sorrow and shame are still here. So we live in what has been called this between the times. The time of Christ's coming. The the Messiah breaking into the world to do his work. And the time when he will come again to finish it off once and for all. So what do we do if these promises are true while we wait? And I think that that's, that's where this song ends. Verse 7 is the conclusion of a song. I know it doesn't look like it maybe in the way your Bible is printed. It might just go straight on into verse 8. But, but in the original, uh, it's clear at the end of the verse of this song sung by the Messiah. And his, his last words in his song are what he's going to do through delegates. He's talked, it's all been about God's work so far. But then at the very end, he says, okay, now I'm setting up watchmen, he says in verse 6. And here's what you are supposed to do as watchmen. We are the watchmen. Here's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to speak, not be silent, to speak boldly about what's coming and to pray relentlessly until it gets here. Now, I want to talk briefly about each of those two things. I think, that there's, I think they are what they have to be if these promises are true. So I want to make sure that's clear. And then I want to make it, make it as practical as possible for what your life should look like if you were to wait in faith as one who's constantly speaking about what's coming, one who's constantly praying that it'll come. So in verse 6, Messiah installs these watchmen to speak, to, to, to remain, to, to never be silent all day. And all night. I'm going to show you a really cool connection between our passage this morning and the story of Jesus' ministry. Between this verse and the purpose of the church that Jesus establishes in the story of his ministry. I think that the story Luke tells is showing Jesus to be a fulfillment of this and showing us to be the watchman Jesus is talking about. So in, the, in, in Luke, the first words that Jesus speaks in his public ministry, the first words are a quote from Isaiah 61. He walks into the, into the synagogue. 
he opens up his Bible and he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He makes it a statement. I am the one who sang this song. Then Luke goes on to record the last words of Jesus' public ministry. These are in Acts chapter 1. Acts is by the same guy who wrote, who wrote the gospel of Luke. And in the last words of Jesus' public ministry, he's on the mountain with his disciples. And they're asking him, having read Isaiah, having known that Jesus has claimed to be this Messiah, having seen now Jesus is back from the dead, they're asking him the natural question, is this it? Is this the time when, when you're going to fulfill all the promises that were made to us in Isaiah, that the, the, you're going to get rid of the Romans and your kingdom on earth is, is now, it's here. Is that right? And Jesus tells them in Acts chapter 1, I don't even know when that time is. And it's not for you to know when that time is. Here's what is for you to know. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, You will be my witnesses, all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. I think that we're meant to see a connection here between Jesus claiming, even, I even think, well, Luke is not citing this verse. I think it maybe was even in his mind. Starts Jesus' ministry out at the beginning of Isaiah 61, the promise of a coming Messiah, Jesus saying, I'm him. He ends it at the end of the same song where Jesus is saying, I'm installing watchmen who are going to be my witnesses to tell the world what's coming and to call them to get ready for it. So Jesus, minist- Jesus calls on us through his disciples while we wait, not knowing the time when he'll return to make good on all of these promises. We have one job that he gives us in Acts 1-8, and that is to be his witnesses, to testify to what he's like and to the world that he's promised to bring in for us, to speak about it as a way of life, to speak all day and all night and to never... Never go silent. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we do it? I mean, obviously we don't, right? Not in the way we want to, but what would it look like even for us to be watchmen who are never silent, to bear witness to this? I think it's not rocket science. It's the most natural thing in the world. It's just unnatural for us for some reason. I mean, all of us are constantly going around recommending things to people who need it, right? People want to, where, where should we eat tonight? Well, what are you in the mood for? Okay, let me tell you about this great new place that I saw. Right? We hear people's needs, and oftentimes we think we got the answer for it. And we just naturally, as a way of life, we communicate about it, right? But how, and how many times? The gospel is not some sort of far and outside of our experience uh, amount of data, right? It is, a, it, is, it is real life, real world issues. It addresses itself to problems all of us have. So how many times do you run into somebody who's struggling with fear? They're just afraid. So why, when we hear somebody's afraid, does our mind not trigger in the same way that that a request for a restaurant recommendation to tell them that that, that God has promised that he's not only the maker of the whole universe, but he's put his power at our disposal if we trust in him, that he can care for you and protect you from whatever it is that, that, that you're afraid of, that he's actually making a new world even now where you won't even have to fear for anything. It'll be obvious to you that he is for you and that all your needs are met. Why don't we go there when we hear that somebody's afraid? When we hear that someone is guilty? They're telling us something they did or said they wish they hadn't. Why, don't, why doesn't our first instinct to say, you know what, Jesus came so that you don't have to live in guilt. The servant took your sins on himself so that you could have peace. You can know it now if you'll trust in him. Isn't that the most natural thing? It should be the most natural thing. So why isn't it? It could be that we just don't believe these promises are true. 
or at the very least, maybe we don't think they're relevant. We don't think they are attached, we don't see them as attached to real problems that real people have. But if we believe them, if we believe these promises, they're a self-involving belief. They change the way we interact with each other, the way we interface with our world. And we'll talk about them. That's the natural response. You take what's offered as a solution to a problem and you apply it to the problem if you think it's real, if you think it's relevant. That's what it would look like for us to bear witness. Yes, it looks like international missions. Yes, it looks like talking uh, to people you don't even know on an airplane about the gospel. It should look like that. It should also be as basic as as you go about your life when you hear people raising the needs that the gospel is meant to, to supply. You speak into that as a witness to the world that's coming, as the watchmen who are always on the lookout. That's the first response, the first thing to do while you wait. Verse 7 has an even more startling requirement. It's addressed to the same group, the same group of watchmen. Now they're described as those who are to put the Lord in remembrance. Uh, Some of your translations might put it, who call on the Lord. I like to put the Lord in remembrance language. It's like, make sure he remembers. It's, It's... it's kind of anthropomorphic, which means it's, it's kind of us applying human kind of language to God. We know he doesn't forget things. But what it looks like from our perspective is to always be reminding him of the things he's promised to do as a way of saying, you know what, you staked your glory to this. You put your name to your ability to deliver for us. Don't you remember what you've promised us? Do it. Make good. Come now. Put the Lord in remembrance and don't let him off the hook. At the, sound of, I mean, at the risk of, of sounding even a little irreverent, Saying, give God no rest. Don't just take no rest for yourself while you pray. But give him no rest. Be the squeaky wheel, right? Put in front of him your needs every time they come up and remind him of his promises to meet those needs. That's what it looks like to wait on him. It looks like relentless prayer. I think it's a way of saying what Paul says, that you're supposed to pray without ceasing. Not that you're... Not that you're constantly praying like without stopping all day and all night, but that you're praying as a way of life. It just comes out of you, it oozes from you. Why do you think God commands that here? And how could we do it? Those are the last two questions I want to answer. Why that? Why this response to the promises God has made? I mean, from, from one perspective things we see Isaiah say about God, they've pictured for us this incredibly sovereign God who does what he wills, who takes advice from nobody, who needs help from nobody, who's, who reigns completely over everything that he made. That's been all through Isaiah. So if this God is the God we're talking about here, isn't he just going to do what he's going to do? Why should we even pray? Why bother asking for anything? That's a, it's a natural question that we ask when we see this, this big God that's been described for us. And yet here, what it looks like to, to trust in him is to, to not only pray, but to pray all the time, to not let him off the hook, almost to treat him as if he wasn't the God that was described here. That could be, it could be tempting to read that way. But the short answer is that God has chosen to act through certain weapons, through means. Just because he's sovereign doesn't mean that he 
that he chooses to do everything by, by some sort of somehow cosmically snapping his hands. He, he uses tools. And in this case, prayer is a perfectly designed tool to do what God wants and to make it clear what, what he's doing and why. Because what prayer does, at its most basic, the most stripped down, prayer is an expression of trust. Prayer is not a tool to get, to, to get God under our thumb. It is a laying down in front of him as one who has nothing and needs everything and has no hope unless God is who he claims to be. Prayer is, prayer is more about us as a tool, in a sense, than it is about God. Prayer expresses something in us. When we pray like he wants us to, we pray as the sick who are in desperate need of a doctor. We pray as those who have nothing that they have not received, as those who are thirsty, as those who have no money but want to come and buy. That's what our prayers say about us, those who have no resources and solutions that haven't run dry. And when we pray like that, it glorifies God as the maker and the sustainer of the universe and as the loving redeemer of us and our sin. It makes us his crown. Remember that for verse 3? The promise is that we will become his crown. We're going to be the proof that he's the king. And prayer is what proves that he's the king. Because in prayer we say, I got nothing. And when God answers those prayers, who gets the credit? The one who has nothing and threw himself on God or the God who holds him up when he's thrown on him? Think about Hezekiah. A couple weeks back, we looked at the story of King Hezekiah, chapter 36, chapter 37. It really goes all the way through 39. But in this, in this one beautiful, there's one beautiful section where Hezekiah gets this letter from his enemy. And he's completely surrounded. He has no hope of fighting off this enemy. He is at the mercy of this powerful man. And he gets in a letter that's mocking God and saying, are you really going to trust in him? Have you looked beyond your walls at the army I've got surrounding you? And you think God can do something about that? None of the other nations' gods have been able to do anything. And Hezekiah takes the letter, doesn't respond to it, he just takes it straight into the temple. Gets, I, I'm imagining him getting down on his face and he just spreads the letter out before God. And by that action, he's saying, you see it. Either he's right or you're going to prove him wrong. I got nothing. But why don't you prove him wrong? And I think that's what we're supposed to do in our prayer life. We're supposed to say, you know, you've made these promises to us. We're not going to be bringing them in. We've got nothing. But why don't you prove to the world that you are the God you claim to be? Deliver us for the sake of your name. Make us your crown. The proof to the world that you are the king you claim to be. That's what godly prayer looks like. That's why prayer pleases God. But how can we do it? That's a huge topic. We're not, it's not really specifically addressed here, so I'm not going to... I'm not going to do anything more than point you towards what it would look like and then one practical tip on how to start building it into your day. How it should look, I draw a lot from a a book I read in college by John Piper, um, Desiring God. I think many of you probably have read it. There's this chapter in there on prayer. It's great. It'd be a great follow-up to today's passage. Um, If you're looking for something to read, for further reading, you might want to try to get a copy of Desiring God if you don't have it and read this chapter on prayer. It's really good. There's this one thing that stuck with me, even from my college days, this this image that he uses for prayer, for contrasting the way we normally pray with how we should pray if we believe God was who he claims to be. He says that we've, we've turned, 
wartime walkie-talkie, which is what prayer should be, into a domestic intercom. Here's what Piper says. And he's taking stock of texts like the one we're looking at today. He's taking stock of the fact that most of us most of us are honestly frustrated with our prayer life. Almost everybody I talk to wishes their prayer life was better. We can't focus. We can't stay consistent in it. We don't know what to say a lot of times. We don't see any answers. Here's what Piper says. Could it be that many of our problems with prayer and much of our weakness in prayer come from the fact that we're not all on active duty and yet we still try to use the transmitter? We've taken a wartime walkie-talkie and tried to turn it into a civilian intercom to call the servants for another cushion in the den. You get that? You get that point? We've taken this thing that God has given us as a way of, as a weapon for bringing in a new kingdom, for making a political military move against the powers that be in this world, against the evil that threatens us and, and makes us fear. He's given us prayer as a weapon while we wait for his promises to come, as a means for bringing them in. And we've turned it into an intercom to ask him to make our lives more comfortable. Now, this is not meant to suggest that we shouldn't pray to God day-to-day needs. We should. It glorifies him. It shows him that we need him even to have the strength to get through another hard day with the kids or to, to have a job that gives us the food that we need to put on our table. We have real needs, and he's honored when we bring them to him, but... But if our perspectives are so consumed with the day-to-day, with just surviving, and our prayers never get bigger than that, then we're living with heads in the sand. The perspective that we have of what he's promised should be coloring the day-to-day prayers that we pray rather than letting our day-to-day, in-the-moment needs take out of our vision the big sweep of promises he's made to us about a new world that's coming and that's going to come through prayer. We should pray towards these promises as if our lives depend on them because our lives do depend on them. Give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in all the earth. Here's your practical tip. I don't have time to develop it. But it's one of the things I'm trying to learn in my own prayer life. I'm trying to learn to always be watching for signs that the promises aren't here yet. I'm looking for things in my day that remind me yet again that the world described here is not the world I'm living in. And I'm trying to drive myself from seeing the sin and the sorrow and the threat of death that are still all around me, even in my own experience. Even the things like the simple nostalgia of watching good things pass away before you want them to. Like even the the growth of my children, which is blowing past me. I'm trying to use that even as a way of praying in a world in which the the good things like, like my kids are only meant to foreshadow the sweetness of the pleasure that's coming our way in this world. And I'm trying to use these experiences to drive me to a prayer that God would make good. Pray for the end of death. Pray for the end to conflict, physical and relational. Pray for the end to goodbyes, to good things that are no more. Pray for the end to personal sin when, when our identity in Christ will be an identity that's also in us and will actually be made like him so that we're pleasing to God because of who he's made us, not just because of who he's declared us to be. 
Pray like this, and you'll be waiting for those promises in faith in the way that you're meant to. Father, give us this faith because we don't have it. Give it to us for the sake of your name. Prove to us and to this watching world that you are God. And help us to wait for you in hope and not in despair. We pray for this in the name of your Son, the Messiah who has come to make it happen. We pray to you through Jesus. Amen.